You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I don't get many emails like this, but I get one every once in a while. And it kind of blows my mind because I don't understand exactly what the problem is. But somebody wrote me because they were in their sibling's house and they found their sibling's quote-unquote playroom. They found a room with some hooks in the ceiling and a sling. And these are straight siblings. This is straight guy and his wife and sister's over and she finds this room that's obviously a little sex palace for them and maybe some light bondage or whatever it is that this straight couple enjoys in their room dedicated to sex solely. And – the person who wrote me wasn't the sibling whose sex playroom was found who was upset that his sister was snooping, but the sister who was very concerned that her brother was deviant and perverted in unhealthy ways, which calls to – that's exactly the phrase she used, deviant and perverted in unhealthy ways. So she's at least leaving open the possibility that there are deviancies and perversions that are healthy, but she wanted to know how she should respond to this and what she can do to help her brother – get over it or get past it to help her brother stop doing something that he enjoys, presumably his spouse enjoys and that doesn't do anyone else harm. And I read this going, did you mean to send this to Ann Landers 35 years ago? Why are you writing to me? You can't write to me if you don't read me. And how would you think I would react to this? And you'd be surprised how often I get this question that people sort of have it in their heads that there's a permissible sort of degree of perversion and then past some point, you're too interested in sex or it's too perverted. There's probably nothing her brother and his wife actually do in that room uh, that she would disapprove of, you know, light bondage and probably fucking in different crazy positions aided and abetted by a sling. Uh, if they weren't doing it in a room dedicated to sex, that's probably the issue for this woman is that they're so into sex that they devoted a whole room in their house to sex, whereas if they built a wine cellar or a media room or anything else that people really don't need. She wouldn't have a problem with it because it wasn't about sex. It's just sex negativity that brings out this reaction. But people have it in their heads that they're, they have a right to dictate to and control and scold and disapprove of other people doing what they enjoy with people who also enjoy it, not dragging in little old ladies off the street and making them watch, not sexually assaulting anyone, nothing non-consensual going on. But because it's perverted, because it's a little off the sex grid – or it's not in a bedroom with the door shut in the middle of the night. It is kinky, crazy, not okay and I have to as a loving sister assert my non-existent authority and control in this situation and dictate terms to my brother about what he can do with his dick and where and when. And she writes to me. People are entirely too invested in other people in their lives being quote unquote normal. There ain't no normal. Everybody's got something from column C. I like this column A, which is, you know, the standard issue, sucking, fucking, rolling around. Column B, maybe, you know, having your hair pulled or being held down or doggy style or reverse cowgirl. And there's column C, which is kinks. Crazy. Something nuts. Everybody's got some shit from column C. Everybody, including, I bet you, this sister. Maybe this kind of attempt to control her brother sexually is her crazy sex shit. Maybe this turns her on. But writing to me about it just seems. Not so when I get so many letters like this. Why do people care that some people are kinky or crazy or have a sex room or have a sexual fetish that doesn't involve them? And this 
urge on so many folks' part to stamp those things out demonstrates a kind of sexual insecurity or paranoia that's very unbecoming what you do when you happen to find your brother's little sex playroom in his house is you close the door and shut your fucking mouth and stop goddamn snooping around the master bedroom. That's what you do. And if you don't want to be burdened by this awareness that some people out there are doing sex things, crazy sex things that you wouldn't do or that you disapprove of, <laughs> don't be pulling open drawers. Don't be opening doors. Stay the fuck in the living room and the kitchen where you goddamn belong, sis. Try that. And of course, when I say stay in the kitchen where you belong, I mean that's where female relatives are supposed to stay to cook and clean. No, I mean stay in the common rooms where people hang out when they visit their siblings. Stay the fuck out of your siblings' bedrooms, porn collections, sex rooms, drawers where they keep their dildos and vibrators and cock rings and silk scarves and whatever else. Unless you want to be tormented with mental images of your siblings doing things that you as a sibling don't need to think about or involve yourself in. And speaking of perverts and sexual deviants, joining us today on the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast is author, sex writer, fearless, peerless sex writer, as I like to call him, Jesse Baring. He is the author of a book we've talked about before on the show, Why Is My Penis Shaped Like That?, and the author of the new book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us. And he is joining us later in the Magnum edition of this week's Savage Lovecast to talk about his new book and take some questions from the Savage Lovecast most perverted listeners. If you're not already a subscriber to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, you might want to think about upgrading the new season of the Savage Lovecast begins this week. When you subscribe to the Savage Lovecast, what you get is twice as much show with no ads. You get added guests. You get added segments like What You Got, where we invite different sex researchers and scientists on to talk about the results of their latest studies and uh, twice as many calls and twice as many rants and Twice as many crazy digressions from the batshit faggot who hosts this show. Uh, so please think about subscribing to the Magnum version if you're not already a subscriber. We appreciate all of our listeners, of course, Micro and Magnum Savage Lovecast listeners and callers. But if you love the Savage Lovecast, there's twice as much of it to love uh, at www.savagelovecast.com. Please think about subscribing. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman calling from Seattle with a question for you. I'm currently engaged to a man, but I still have desire for women. My fiancé is very supportive of this. I've been honest and open with him. He's told me to just go find myself a girlfriend. So I set out doing this, and it's been a lot tougher than I thought, especially in Seattle. Um, I've kind of looked on Craigslist. I don't know. I'm not into the bar scene, really, and I feel like that's where a lot of people meet each other. But I've spoken with a few people on Craigslist, and I don't know if I'm just too picky or what, but it just never seems to be a right fit. Either I'm turned off by the picture or something in their profile is off for me, so I don't know if I'm just being a picky bitch or what, but I just need tips on how to meet women, and also, like, in daily situations, how do I know if a woman is into me or attracted to me, and how do I make that first move or initiate something? 
there are so many bisexual women out there with boyfriends and husbands and fiancés who have the permission that you have to go find a girlfriend and I get a lot of letters from them saying they can't, they can't, they look everywhere and sometimes, you know, lesbians are mean to them and on and on and on. And it just seems to me that you should lead with that. By woman with fiancé seeks, by woman similarly situated, right? Because they're out there. Again, that Pew Research study that only 24-ish percent of bisexuals are out. So there may be bisexuals in your life that you know who might be into you. You may have friends who are female, who are bi, who have fiancés of their own who would like nothing more than to have a friend with benefits on the side, an FWP, friend with pussy that they can eat on the side. And so maybe that person is in your life. And if you're not out and I'm making an assumption here, maybe you're out. Maybe you're one of the minority of bi women who are out. Uh, but if you're not – the solution could be just coming out to everybody uh, in your social circles and in your whole life uh, because then the other bi women who may be similarly situated that you already know and that you might already be into will speak up. As for online dating, something that instills despair in people when they go online and you know, they put up an ad on OkCupid or they go on Craigslist is they'll get 200 responses and of those responses, there's nobody they really want to deal with or talk to. Uh, you know, They don't like this person's picture. They don't like there's something creepy about this person's profile. And then they begin to despair because they're just dinking through all these messages and you know, they did the first dozen hoping there'd be somebody there. It's like walking into a bar with a dozen people in it and expecting to find one person in that bar you want to fuck. Odds are pretty low. You walk into a bar, a crowded bar on a Friday night and there's 200 people. The odds that there's you know, maybe one or two people there you want to fuck, OK, a little higher. But it's still only going to be one or two people. And what, the, the, what's distorting about the impression that online dating gives is you have to have an interaction with each of these people to disqualify them. If you went out to a nightclub and you had to one by one talk to every single person in that nightclub before you got to talk to the one person that you clicked with, you would think going out sucks. But you get to do all this sorting when you go out that's – Almost subconscious. It's just instinctual where you don't look at the people you're, you know, you're not into. You don't have to wait for the other people in the club to send you their picture before you can take a look at them. You look at them. You automatically eliminate all the people to, that you're not physically attracted to. You don't waste your time on them. You have brief interactions with people you are physically attracted to. You quickly eliminate people who are socially maladapted or smoke or whatever else your disqualifiers are and you winnow it down very quickly to the handful of people in that club that you might be into. The winnowing down – when you online date, you may be eliminating the same number of people. You may be going from 200 messages to two or three people you want to go on a date with. But that winnowing process takes a lot longer. It takes a lot more mental energy. And it can distort your impression of how online dating works or whether online dating is as successful as just going out. It is. It just forces you to have these more complicated, time-sucky interactions with people that if you were meeting in a club would be – instinctual and instantaneous. You would just not bother with most of the people there. Online dating, you have to bother with everybody who responds to your ad and everybody whose ad you respond to has to bother with you a little bit. But don't let that warp your perspective. You go into a bar, there may be two or three people there that you're interested in. You get 200 messages, 200 responses to your profile at OkCupid or your ad on Craigslist. There may only be one or two people there in that pile that you're interested in. So don't lose hope. Keep digging around. Go out. Come out if you're not already. Go out. Go to bars. Take it from me. Bars and clubs are full of people who want to meet people like pickup-ish joints are full of people who want to meet somebody that they never have to go back to that bar with ever again. That was my feeling about gay bars and going out. I want to meet one guy that I never have to go to a gay bar with ever again and I met him, right? You can meet her. Go out to the bars and keep putting up online ads. 
and keep responding. And don't let that disparity, how much longer it takes to do that winnowing process, fill you with despair about online dating because a majority of people now meet their partners online, even their side partners, even their friends with PBs, friends with pussy benefits. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old gay guy, and I've been completely open and out about being gay since I was 13. I don't like to use the term straight acting because it's stupid, but a lot of guys have referred to me as that. I don't fall into what some consider to be one of the many gay stereotypes with my behavior or my interests. The majority of my friends are straight men, by coincidence. And I'm even in the unusual position of working for a company where the owners and at least half of the staff is openly gay, and even though I'm open, I continue to find that most of my coworkers assume that I'm straight unless I explicitly state that I'm gay. Nonetheless, I'm very comfortable with my homosexuality, and I'm very open about it with everyone. Lately, I've been going out on dates, mostly with guys I meet on the internet because I can't stand bars or clubs. When I go out with or hook up with guys who identify as gay, my experiences are usually pleasant, but with no real connection or common ground besides a mutual love of cock. When I go out or hook up with guys who identify as straight or questioning, I have a much more enjoyable experience because we like a lot of the same things and there's usually less expectation on the dating front, which I admit is probably because there likely isn't much of a future for us if he's questioning his sexual identity. I'm not trying to trap a man by any means, and I'm not looking for one of those instant relationships, but I would like to meet a guy who I share interests with or with whom we could at least tolerate each other's interests. A lot of the gay men I go out with seem unable or unwilling to wrap their mind around me, and a lot of the straight men I go out with are seemingly dead ends to a relationship. I live in Los Angeles, a major city with a huge and diverse population of gay men, so the quantity of guys isn't an issue. What would be your advice for someone in my position? A guy with whom most people assume is straight is in the quote-unquote straight things, but who is extroverted, comfortably gay, and is looking to meet a quality guy with the potential for a relationship who also wouldn't object to maybe going to a basketball game or two. I hate to do this to you because I hate it when people do this to me. Whenever I write anything that's vaguely critical or say anything that's vaguely critical about any aspect of gay culture or gay sex cultures or any individual gay idiot out there, I get accused of internalized homophobia. And My stock response is I have no internalized homophobia. My homophobia is entirely externalized. I like me. I hate you. Right? That's the joke response. But internalized homophobia is a real thing and you seem comfortable. You seem pretty self-aware. But I do think that you have this little streak of internalized homophobia. If every guy who identifies as gay coincidentally enough is somehow – too gay for you, disqualifyingly gay for you, um, you're the common denominator in all of those interactions. I, I hate to break it this to you but you are not the only gay dude on earth who is gender conforming, who moves through the world without people automatically pinging him as gay. Uh, so they're out there and if you fucked a broad swath of the gay dudes in Los Angeles, you have fucked gay dudes like you, I guarantee you. But I bet what you do in those interactions or what somebody who has you know, a terrible subconscious case of internalized homophobia might do during one of those interactions is scan that guy for evidence of a gay trait that disqualifies them from being with me because he's cliche gay, right? He may like to go to basketball games. He may be a total fucking cock monster, aggressive he-man in bed. He may have a hairy chest. He may 
do whatever, but oh, he likes musicals. He's so gay, right? I've seen – I have friends that I used to talk to who would do this to guys. Guy, you know, I want to be with a man, not a woman. If I want to be with a woman, I'd be with a woman. And they're with this they, – they've dumped this guy who's a guy who it seems to me to be a guy but he's too into fashion. Eh, disqualified. But they don't scan the straight guys that they have crushes on for the same disqualifying evidence because all straight guys have some girly shit going on too, a little bit. They're all terrified by it because to be a straight guy is to not be a fag and not be a girl and anything girly or faggy that you're interested in could potentially explode your sexual identity and no one's going to believe you. But all straight guys have a little bit of girl in them too, right? But you're not scrutinizing those straight guys as closely. Those closeted dudes or straight identified dudes, questioning dudes – as closely because something about the fact that they're in conflict like that, something about the fact that they are themselves holding their homosexuality, their gay identity at arm's length, that they're communicating their discomfort with being gay, vibes with your own discomfort around being gay, that you have that in common with them. So I would encourage you to find a nice gay boy and fuck him more than once and to turn a blind eye to whatever disqualifyingly gay characteristics he might have and tap into the more sort of standard issue masculine characteristics that he might have because I guarantee you he's a mixture of both as you are. You say you're straight acting. Every straight acting gay guy I've ever met, I have been able to find the fruity tooty trait and you have at least one because you know what? Every straight guy has at least one too. So my advice to you is to get over yourself. My advice to you is to date some gay dudes who are healthy and comfortable. There's a lot of straight identified dudes out there or questioning dudes or closeted dudes who they have no gay traits at all because they can't allow themselves to have any because they're closeted, because they're bottled up. And once they come out, they may then be a little freer to express themselves without worrying about people thinking they're gay because now people know they're gay because they told them. So this idea that you have that these guys are straight acting miracles no matter how much of your cock they inhale uh, and wouldn't it be great if one of them was completely out? Once those guys come completely out, out comes the musicals. Out comes the fashion sense. Out comes the perhaps slightly flippant sense of humor. Out comes the real voice that they've been suppressing. Some people say, oh, my friend came out. Now he has a gay voice. Oh, why did he have to do that? Well, your friend before he came out? was talking like – grunting like a monosyllabic dumb fuck because that was part of his closet and now he's speaking with his real voice and his real voice is a little gay and there's nothing wrong with that. All of that said – I realize I've been slapping you around a little bit. All of that said, you're doing everything right in a way. 28 years old, comfortable with your homosexuality, out of the closet, out at work, out to your friends. Congratulations. You are part of what has changed the world. The single most politically important act that any lesbian, gay, bi or trans individual can take is to be out and you are doing that and doing that work and thank you. There's just a little bit of work you have left to do, which is to get the fuck over this. Not yourself. I take that back. Don't get over yourself. Sounds like you're fine with yourself. Get over this this problem that you have where when you're with a gay dude, you're scrutinizing him for disqualifying gay shit. And when you're with a straight identified dude, you don't engage in the same kind of scrutiny or that dude by dint of being closeted isn't free enough with himself to expose those traits that once he's openly gay, you would disqualify him for. That is an expression of your internalized homophobia and self-hatred and you need to get the fuck over it or you will be alone all your life, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Plenty of people are alone in their lives, totally happy. Doesn't sound like that's what you want. 
So you need to get the fuck over it. You're going to be alone all your life sucking off semi-closeted straight identified dudes off grinder. Doesn't sound like fun to me. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling with a question that has nothing to do with sex, romance, or uh, any of your usual topics. I've just noticed a recurring theme in your podcast and uh, in your book that I'm reading right now, the latest one, that you seem to have a fear of flying. And so I'm wondering what coping strategies you have to deal with that. Uh, any any advice you have would be helpful. I, I've just noticed that, I don't know, I, I never really used to be scared of flying, but then over the past couple of years, I think I've had some real like turbulent flights and just hoping to hear what uh, what you do, you know, besides prayer. Prayer works for me. I want to call myself an atheist. I just got a big award from the Freedom From Religion Foundation for being, you know, kind of a public atheist. But I, you know, honesty forces me to admit that I am kind of religious when I'm sitting on an airplane, uh, which is why I call myself an agnostitheist, uh, sort of an agnostic-atheist hybrid. I cross myself when the plane takes off. But when the plane lands, I don't give a shit. I don't cross myself. I don't thank Jesus when the plane lands. I'm thinking Jesus when the plane takes off. When the plane lands, I'm thinking thank you, Delta. So I'm an agnostic and an ingrate. I'm surprised God doesn't knock a plane I'm on out of the sky. Uh, what I do is I, I, I pray a little bit, honest to God, honest to the God I don't think exists. Um, and I drink a little bit in the airport and I look at the flight attendants and they all seem so calm. Even when there's turbulence, you look at them and they're like, whatever. And then I remember that I'm sure that every flight attendant on every flight that ever crashed had that look on their face too for most of the flight. Whatever. But somehow looking at the whatever faces on the crew helps me calm down. Also too, shut your fucking mouth, everybody on the airplane around me. Put your fucking windows down so we don't have to look at the curvature of the earth and remember how high up in the sky we are. And put your fucking nose in a book because it takes you off the airplane. That's my coping strategy. Booze. Flight attendants, books, and don't fucking talk to me. That's my strategy. And nothing makes you feel you're more on an airplane than having to have a conversation with the businessman sitting next to you. <sighs> no, 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 thank you. Hi, Dan. I've been with my current boyfriend for the past three and a half years. And um, I went away for a year to teach English abroad. And while I was there, I ended up having an affair which wasn't really something I wanted to happen, but it did end up happening. And I haven't told my boyfriend, we are very serious. We do plan on getting married at some point. And I feel like somehow I'm going to need to tell him about the affair. And I don't really know how or what to do. And I was wondering if you could help me. I'm of two minds here. Sometimes – and this isn't just sex radical, the enemy of monogamy and all things good and decent. Uh, Value Voters Summit attacked me saying this. But sometimes you know, if affair was a one-off, it's something you regret. It's something that's not going to happen ever again. Uh, you should stuff it down the memory hole instead of shifting the burden of your guilt onto the shoulders of your partner. And in that shifting, it sort of transmogrifies from – Guilt to anger or whatever else your partner might feel. You know, you've unburdened yourself, but you've burdened him. Sometimes it's better to allow that person to continue to believe that you are the sort of better person that they've invested so much in emotionally. If there's no chance that your partner is ever going to find out, right? If you're relatively certain that he's never going to find out, you can stuff it down the memory hole. 
based on how tormented you sound by all of this, I wonder if that's possible for you, that not being honest, stuffing this down the memory hole, hoping he never finds out might not be something that emotionally you are capable of doing, that this will eat and eat and eat at you. And so 3.5 years you've been together with him and you're thinking about getting married and if this is the sort of thing that you may blurt out some night in the dark night of the soul, confession-a-thon and potentially derail your marriage, uh, if you are afraid it could come back to haunt you uh, and it could be a shattering revelation for him that makes it impossible for him to go through with the wedding if it should come out post-engagement and right before the ceremony, then maybe you do need to unload. You were away for a year. I think the best policy when people are going to be apart for a year is don't ask, don't tell. That if something happens for me while I'm gone, it will be a temporary thing. Something happens for you while I'm gone and we're not going to tell each other. Maybe one night, 15 years in the future, uh, on our 10th anniversary, we'll go out and get drunk and swap uh, – Stories about what went on before we got married, before we made that serious commitment. Because remember, you weren't married yet. You know, if you vow to be faithful and true, if you vow to forsake all others at your wedding, that's the moment those vows kick in. Sometimes I think people prematurely early in a relationship, when it's girlfriends, boyfriends, they make a kind of premature vow to forsake all others when they're still trying to figure out who it is they want and what they want. Uh, and sometimes getting with somebody else helps you realize that this is indeed the, the boyfriend or girlfriend that you're with is the person that you do want to commit to in a more serious and permanent way. So maybe you should fucking tell him. Tell him before you get married. Tell him this thing happened while you were abroad. Don't use passive language. You said I didn't want it to happen but it wound up happening. It's not a thunderstorm. You, you wanted it to happen. You did this. This isn't something that happened to you. You have to at least – Pay him the respect of owning it. Like you were abroad and you got carried away and you did this and you regret it. But don't use it happened to me. Don't use I got hit by a tree limb that fell in the shape of a dick on some hot foreigner because that just adds insult to injury. Just tell him. And then brace yourself for him to tell you something similar. Brace yourself for to hear that, well, while you were abroad, I did X myself. And then you can forgive each other and move on. If – he did sweat out a whole year of you away, jacking it into dirty tube socks while you were away. If he passed up on a couple of opportunities while you were away because you were being faithful to him and he wanted to be faithful to you, he might be mad about that. But that's just the risk you'll have to take. But I think it's likelier that when you make your big confession, he'll have a big confession of his own to make. Then you can forgive each other and get married and have babies and then one day have three ways. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight guy, and I'm in a relationship. We've been dating for about a year, and for the last oh, seven or eight months, we've been in an open relationship, and that's been going well overall between us. Um, she's seen a few guys. I've seen a few women. Uh, a couple of them have been people I've known before her and I had met, and I've mostly been doing online dating, which is what I was doing for the five years where I was single before we met. And I've met one person, and that's been going really great. Um, we actually both have a relationship with her, and that's a lot of fun. And I think that woman is also having a lot of fun, too. Uh, the problem is, though, outside of that, I haven't met anybody. And like I said, I've been dating online for a while, and I kind of know how it works, and I had success with it when I was single, but not so much now. And I've had dates planned that get canceled, and I'm also open about the fact that I'm in an open relationship on my profiles. So what I'm wondering is... Is that not the most effective way of meeting people as a 
guy, a single or a straight man in an open relationship? Should I be doing something else? Is there a strategy I should be using online uh, that I might not be aware of, having used it uh, as a single guy? And also, you know, what what's the best way to disclose? I typically like to have even casual sexual relationships. Uh, I don't we typically have one-night stands. I usually sleep with people that I like hanging out with, and I like to continue that. And I also find that the sex gets better the more you do it with somebody. So is it important to disclose right away when you meet somebody, whether online or off? Is it something that you can disclose the second or third time you see each other? It's really frustrating. Um, sometimes uh, I have had a couple of experiences where I have met people at parties or through friends, and it seems to be going well, and then that sort of comes up, and it gets people kind of freaked out. Um, so, yeah, any advice you can give to a man, a straight man in an open relationship would be awesome. This is a thing. People in open relationships talk about this thing. You know, a straight couple, they have an open relationship. She has no problem lining up guys who want to fuck her. Uh, and he has a lot of trouble finding women who want to fuck him. Why are open relationships easier for women? Because men are pigs. And why are they harder for men? Because it's not safe for women to be the pigs that many of them would like to be. You know, research into female sexual desire shows a lot of women would like to be out there acting just like men, doing just like doing just what men do, being as piggish as men. But Intimate partner violence, rape, emotional security, the way that sexually transmitted infections and the risks of pregnancy all fall disproportionately onto the shoulders of women. It's harder and less safe for women to be impulsive and free. And then there are the sort of cliches that have a huge fucking beach full of truth in them, not a grain of sand, that a lot of women want an emotional connection. And a lot of the women you're going to find online sites like OkCupid are looking for relationships and they may disqualify you because you are in a relationship. And they want someone of their very own. You ask if online is the most effective way to meet people. Online is an effective way to meet people. But offline is also an effective way to meet people. What you need to do is put yourself out there. You can leave the open relationship thing off your profile initially if you wish. You need to disclose early and as you are discovering often. Disclose early and often and you will find the women who are either open to seeing somebody who's in an open relationship or in open relationships themselves. Remember, your girlfriend was out there looking for guys to fuck. There are other girls like your girlfriend out there who are looking for guys to fuck and you can be that guy, right? For some of those girls who are in open relationships. But But because of the sort of double standard, because of the way guys who are – women who are often in open relationships are seen as guys by many guys as desirable and adventurous. But guys who are in open relationships are judged unfairly by a lot of women and seen as sleazy scumbags. As I've given women permission to shave down their numbers because women are unfairly judged based on the number of sex partners that they've had. So I think women kind of have a right to – Work around that double standard by being a little duplicitous. I think you can work around this double standard by being a little tiny bit duplicitous yourself. Don't get into bed with anyone prior to disclosing the fact that you do have a girlfriend, that you are in an open relationship. But if you want to go out on a couple of dates, I think you have a right to go out on a couple of dates before you disclose. Most women, as you found, you said that you've had you know some people you've met at parties, you met in real life who were interested at first until they found out. Most women are probably going to take a walk. But eventually you're going to find a woman or a couple of women or a series of women who's 
desire to fuck you overwhelms their resistance to messing around with someone in an open relationship. That's what almost always happens with new and different and challenging things. People don't go out there and throw themselves into new and different and challenging situations. They meet somebody who wants to do X and they were never really into X, but they're so into this person that they're willing to do X for them. And I don't mean ecstasy. I mean – or some representative sex act, X. Sex act, X. Banging somebody in open relationship, sex act, X. Bondage, sex act, X. Piss, whatever. People might be willing to go there for somebody they're so into. But just hypothetically and someone they've never met, somebody whose profile they stumbled over on OkCupid, they would look at that as an automatic instantaneous disqualifier. But if they got to know that person a little bit, they might feel differently. So because of the double standards, because it's so much harder for men, I think you can not lie, not cheat, not fail to disclose in a timely fashion, but I think you can hold back that info for a date or two. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay male now living and studying in the city of London. So my question is, I've been seeing this guy who is a 40-year-old artist for about two months. I really like him and look forward to move on to the next level with him. However, he just recently told me that he's um, HIV positive. I wasn't quite shocked by it because I have some friends who are also positive. So I know a few things about it. Also, we haven't had any unprotected sex as I'm not very into anal. Uh, most of the time, we just roll around, kiss, snuggle, and some oral. But now, um, I know I should wait for the three-month period to do the test, just in case. So at this point, I don't know if I should continue to date him. On one hand, I appreciate his honesty and being very considerate and careful about things we did. On the other hand, it seems unfair to me that I feel I've been punished by his promiscuous behaviors, even though they happened in the past. I'm not a player. I look for a serious relationship, ultimately, a lifetime partner who I can trust and hopefully be fully bonded. I understand it's possible to still have a relationship with the people who are HIV positive, but I feel I'm not ready to make such a commitment and take any risk just to be with this guy since I might have to leave the country once my education is finished. I would really appreciate any suggestion that you can give Having to think, having to be thoughtful about the relationship you're in and the person with whom you are in that relationship, I don't think that's punishment. You know, you said you feel like you are being punished for his past promiscuous behaviors. Um, you're, you're not being punished. You've met somebody who is a real living human being and not just some stereotype or some you know nameless, faceless person with HIV, and you're having to confront. This conflict between your desire to be with him, him in particular, who happens to be HIV positive, and your desire to be with someone who is, you know, boyfriend to be named later, who is not HIV positive. And being forced to think is not punishment. That's being alive. So here you are thinking, and here's some stuff to think about. Um, you could dump this guy because he's HIV positive. Some people who are positive seek out only other people who are positive as partners so they don't have to worry about it or think about it. Also don't have to use protection, which of course they should. But many people who are HIV positive feel that they don't need to anymore if they're positive as if there aren't other sexually transmitted infections out there in the world, which of course there are. And it's legit on the flip side for some people who are HIV negative to say that they want to be with somebody who is also HIV negative so that they don't have to worry about it. The problem is though you do have to worry about it because 
a huge percentage of people who are positive don't know they're positive. There are many people out there running around who think they're HIV negative, may have been negative the last time they got an HIV test, who are now HIV positive. And paradoxically, you are at more risk being in a sexual relationship with someone who thinks he's negative and isn't than you are in a relationship with someone who knows he's positive and is under treatment. Most people who are positive and are being treated have zero viral load. They are – doctors will say they are functionally non-infectious. They pose really no threat. If you're also then not having anal intercourse, you're not doing anything that puts you at greater risk for HIV transmission. If he were crazy infectious or his viral load is for some reason spiking because his meds are off, you're really at very, very little risk. So take that into account that there's this person – who because he knows he's positive uh, and is in treatment presumably uh, and it has the decency and, and, and ethics, good sense and concern for you to disclose that information, that person poses less risk to you than somebody who doesn't know he's positive. So you may leave him because he's pos and wind up with somebody who thinks he's negative and get exposed in that relationship. It's kind of the paradox of the current state of affairs with HIV and drugs and treatments and low viral loads. Paradoxically, guys who are pos who are in treatment may be less of a risk to guys who are negative than an assembly line smorgasbord of guys who think they're negative and a certain number of them are not going to be negative and are going to be highly infectious as a result of not knowing they're negative and not being treated and having the virus go crazy in their bodies. The last thing I need to ask you to think about is uh, – Promiscuity. Now, maybe this guy has described to you, uh, you know, a wild period where he fucked a million people and he wasn't being cautious, and he attributes his infection to that promiscuous behavior, that slut phase of his life where he kind of went off the rails and got HIV and has now righted himself and is less reckless. So maybe promiscuity had something to do with his HIV infection. Promiscuity isn't the cause of everyone's HIV infections. If he hasn't said that to you, that his HIV infection he attributes to this stage of his life where he was a little out of control sexually. Um, I would hope that you don't regard him and all other HIV positive people as victims of their own promiscuity because you can get HIV in one encounter. You don't have to go out and fuck a million people to get HIV. Although if you do fuck a million people, you're of course likelier to be in bed with more people with HIV and likelier to get HIV, particularly if you're not using protection. But unless he has described his infection as somehow related to a promiscuous stage, it's not fair of you to attribute it to that necessarily. Not going to tell you what to do. You can date who you want to date, but food for thought. Hi, Dan. 32-year-old straight woman. So I met this guy on OkCupid and the first day was date was great and the second date was nice. And then things went awry, but we went on a third date anyway, and we ended up having sex. And I kind of knew that this was probably not going anywhere, but I hadn't had sex in a really long time, and he smelled good, and, you know. But then we were, like, afterwards sitting on his bed, and, and we were talking, and it was actually a nice conversation. And, okay, I'm, like, the most gullible, idiotic, innocent person ever and I always assume good intentions and, and I don't think about things in a healthily distrustful way. Anyway, so then he brought his computer and he showed me something about a course 
that was really random, but okay. And then he brought a microphone and told me something about an art project he's doing, but he didn't really tell me anything about it. And I even said, haha, are you making porn? And he was like, haha, no. And I was like, okay, haha. And then he put all that stuff on the desk next to the bed. And I said, oh, I have to go now. And he said, oh, let me ravish you one more time. And in that situation, I really didn't put one and beat two together. And I think he filmed us. I mean, we, we kind of, as I said, this wasn't meant to be, so we haven't really talked much ever since. And I really don't know what to do about it. Like, I don't know if I should confront him via text message. Well, like, even if he did admit it, what what should I do with that? And, you know, half of me thinks I should just walk away with as much grace as I have left. But at the same time, it was a really spineless, shitty move and a creepy one, too, on his part. And, you know, it's like, why should my grace be in question if he's the asshole? And, And I've been, like, sexually victimized before and it took me a really long time to get over it and one of the ways to get over it was that I said I'm just not gonna be the helpless victim anymore and I kind of feel like that's what I am right now and anyway right now I'm just kind of like I I can't sleep because I'm freaked out and grossed out and I'm not happy and half of me is like maybe I'm just paranoid and the other half is like no this sounds like I don't know what it sounds like. You tell me, Dan. Tell me what it sounds like. Tell me what I should do about it. Help me be able to sleep again. I'm glad you live in California because Jerry Brown, governor of California, has just signed into law a bill that makes revenge porn illegal. Uh, There are problems with this law. Revenge porn is where somebody will upload to the internet uh, pictures or videos that they made with or that were sent to them by a, a previous partner that they are angry with and they want to embarrass and humiliate. This is a, a huge problem. People have died as a result of their images being released online. People have been slut-shamed and humiliated and ended up killing themselves because they were devastated and destroyed by someone's malicious attempt to devastate and destroy them by uploading these images to the internet. The problem with this law in California, as the New York Times wrote in an editorial this weekend, is that it contains this rather large loophole. The law, which could punish somebody for engaging in revenge porn with up to six months in jail and a $1,000 fine, which is, I don't think, commiserate at all with the offense. But the law only applies, and I'm quoting here from the New York Times, if the individual who distributed the pictures was also the photographer. California's law does not cover situations where someone took a self-portrait and shared it with a partner who then uploaded it to the internet, which is most of the revenge porn shit that goes down. Is somebody asks for or is has a picture sent to them shared sort of willingly and joyfully by a, a partner and the taken by that person themselves and then they upload those images to the internet but the case you face the, the situation you're in is this guy potentially filmed you and i think it's very likely that he did if he's setting up a camera and a microphone in the room um he did that to film you and i'm very sorry uh, it sounds certainly like he filmed you but if he did anything with that film that he most likely made, let's assume that he didn't just make it for himself. Let's assume he made it because he wanted to share it. He would be in violation of this new law uh, signed by Governor Jerry Brown that makes 
this kind of abuse where you take images of someone without their full consent and you upload them or share them in any way makes it a crime which you could spend six months in jail. So if you have this guy's name, if you have this guy's address, here's what I think that you should do. I think you should get a lawyer and I think you should tell the lawyer what went down and pay the lawyer to write a very threatening letter to this man saying that his client fears and assumes that a film was made without her consent and that you are demanding that these films be deleted or destroyed and if this film that was made is ever publicly released, that you will pursue him to the full extent of the law and you will demand that he be punished and imprisoned and fined. And that's not going to make the film disappear if he indeed made a film. But it will certainly give you some peace of mind, peace of mind that perhaps right now you do not enjoy. You will put it in his head that if he attempts to victimize you, you will hold him accountable and that there is a law now in California under which he can be held accountable. And often early in – after the passage of a law like this, DAs and prosecutors want to make an example of someone. So if he should violate you in any way, you will make sure that the DA or the prosecutor that you deal with understands that you want him punished and they are likelier to make sure he spends six very unpleasant months in prison. Sorry that you were victimized in this way. Thanks for calling and sharing your story. Hopefully it will empower other people to get up and leave when somebody starts setting up film equipment and a microphone. Don't beat yourself up about it. All right? You made a mistake by not getting up and leaving. We all make mistakes. You made that probably mistake under duress, under some sort of fear or implicit threat coming from him. Give yourself a break. Get a counselor. Talk it over. But I really think the professional who could help you the most right now, help restore some sense of peace, give you back that peace of mind you're seeking, is a lawyer who can write a really fucking kick-ass terrifying letter and have it delivered to the man at his place of business. Let him know that you know where he lives and where he works and that you have his contact information and you have his full name and you intend to hold him fully accountable if anything that he filmed that day in his room ever surfaces online anywhere. Every once in a while, we invite people to drop into the Savage Lovecast Studios where we broadcast from the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building with a beautiful view of Puget Sound. Uh, and we're really thrilled and honored to have with us today Jesse Baring. He is a recovering academic, a psychologist and popular science writer, a regular contributor to Scientific American and Slate magazines and other publications. Uh, he is the author of the terrific book, Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That? and Other Reflections on Being Human. And the new book, his third, uh, which is equally if not more terrific than Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That? which is one of my favorite books about sex is called Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us. It was published this week by FSG. You can find it on Amazon. It is amazing. Uh, Jesse Baring among sex writers, as I've said before and I will say again, is fearless and peerless and I'm thrilled to have him here with us in the studio today. Thank you for coming by. Thank you so much for having me here, Dan. So what do you think of our glamorous digs here where we do the podcast it's, from? It's fantastic. It's uh, everything I dreamed of. It's pretty nice. One day we hope to have oxygen in this room too in addition to all of our high-tech equipment. Good addition. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell us about Perv. Well, Perv is a book that, that really looks at our, our preoccupation with these questions about what is natural and what is normal and how we really get sort of hung up on these issues and um, trying to move the conversation or the discussion toward, to me, the much more important question of what is harmful and, and really trying to articulate and define uh, uh, clearly harm 
mm-hmm. uh, in a way that makes sense for the parties involved in the sex act. And people typically don't do that. People look at what people are doing and say that's perverted, that's not, that's normal, that's not. I talk about this all the time. I get questions every day. Is this normal? Is this normal? Is this normal? That's the question. People mm-hmm. roll out some insane sex act that they've just performed or wish to perform and end with is this normal? Right. And the answer is always no, but so what? Absolutely. Because yeah. the standard is, is it consensual? Is it harmful? Totally, yeah. Consent and harm are you know the main themes running through the book and proof. So, because um, you can have missionary position, heterosexual intercourse, vaginal intercourse, totally normal, and it can be rape, right? And Absolutely. you can have crazy BDSM sex and people hanging from their ankles from the ceiling, and everybody's thrilled to be there. Mm-hmm. And so the harm is done in that quote unquote normal sex, and there's no harm in the quote unquote batshit crazy abnormal sex. Absolutely. So you know, normal is just a number. That's what I say. Uh-huh. Um, and to to assume that what is natural is right or is okay is a very is a very common um, philosophical error. It's called the naturalistic fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of things that are natural that come natural to us as a species. That, Decomposition. But who wants to do right. that? Um, you know, we like to shave our arm. You know, women like to shave their armpits, and uh, oh, some women anyway, uh, and some drag queens. Uh, yes, uh, and that doesn't. Uh, but it's not natural to do so. It doesn't make it wrong uh, mm-hmm. to do so. So I think that we just um, have to take a closer look at um, uh, why we are so preoccupied with this naturalist uh, uh, question. And why do you think that is? I think it probably stems um, from religion. I mean, if, if we're being honest, that uh, no, 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 we, we we don't traffic in honesty here on the Savage Love. <laughs> no, I'm just please kidding. lie to me. I know. So, so, uh, so I think that to assume that I will it, brook no insults directed at people of faith on yes, my show. Yes, I, yes I, I'm, so religion, religion, why? Well, to to say that um, something is natural. Uh, therefore it's okay or to say that something is unnatural therefore it's wrong is to assume that there was a creator that actually had some preconceived idea or some um, plan or some prescription for what we should be doing with our genitalia and anything else therefore is wrong. We're going against the grain. Mm-hmm. We are uh, trespassing on the uh, the, the design uh, of, of the human body or what we should be doing uh, with our organs. And of course I'm an evolutionary theorist uh, um, and from a biological perspective we certainly don't need to invoke God to understand the way that our reproductive anatomy evolved. Mm-hmm. And I th- you know, we have to be careful about this again because you know, the title of my last book, Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? Well, the penis is shaped like that because it was designed to re- – you know, from a heterosexual perspective, it was designed to remove uh, seminal fluid or semen from another male, a rival uh, competitive male from the female reproductive tract and that suggested that um, – that and, and other animals, their penises are not shaped like that. No, there's no glands head. There's no coronal ridge. That really. functions as a plunger. The headless horseman is what I what – yeah, uh-huh. in other species. But with humans, we've got this uh, coronal ridge that is, that's designed to pull out semen from uh, males that have gone before us in terms of having sex with that particular woman. So that tells us that in the ancestral past, monogamy probably wasn't very common. Um, it wasn't natural in other words. So mm-hmm. we run into that problem with that issue as well. I always think of religion and sex uh, and you know, God says this is the way it's supposed to work. Religion ultimately – you know, some would say when it's perverted in some way is about power and control, right? And if you can get in between somebody's sense of themselves as a spiritual being, their, their, their higher sense of themselves, um, their desire to you know, be a part of something bigger and for the world to have meaning and their dick, you can control that person. If you can convince them that every time they masturbate, every time they do something with their genitals that isn't from the God script, that they're going to go to hell for all eternity and they can only come to you for absolution – You've got them literally by the nuts. Incredibly powerful, yeah, from a sociological perspective, yeah. So 
you know, I, I think that um, if we take – I mean I actually believe that God is a serious moral impediment to thinking about sexuality clearly. Uh, so to take, God, to take God out of the picture, it would be enormously helpful in considering these questions deeply and more appropriately. Now, some on the religious right would say this is very self-serving of us, this entire conversation, because we're both faggots. Yes. So of course we want to take God out of the picture because God hates fags. Mm. So how would you respond to those people that you have a pervert agenda? Uh, well, it's kind of a – it's a meaningless uh, accusation really because I don't believe in God. So to say that God – you know, to, to assume that I think that God – The blue fairy like hates fags. Right. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to respond to that. I, I mean I, I really don't understand – I don't know how to respond to people who say that they don't believe in evolution for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just at a loss uh, in terms of reasoning with such individuals. Wow. It must be difficult for you living here in America. Slightly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and especially teaching at the University of Arkansas for five years. Oh, my God. Where you were the only person who believed in evolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was not an easy time in my life. So, perv, the sexual deviant in all of us. When I, when I talk and people typically say, you know, I want to I have normal sex with somebody. He's normal. Uh, I have this thing I usually say. Which, you know, everybody's got everything, you know, most everything from column A, which everyone thinks of as normal, including oral sex, which is totally column A now. And it didn't used to be. That used to be considered very kinky and dirty and perverted oral sex. And then there's column B, which is, you know, maybe – anal every once in a while if you're straight and that's like, whoa, that's a little like on the wild side. And then column C, which is fucking C for car crazy, the pervert, right? And I think everybody's got like one thing at least that's column C. I think there is a pervert in everyone out there. And some people right. arrive at that awareness earlier than others. Men, I think, because of my theory is sexual peak, arrive at what their kinks and turns on are very young. And women, as we saw with the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, arrive at their sexual peak later in life and then arrive at their kinks perhaps later in life. Do you think everyone's a pervert? You say the sexual deviant in all of us in your subtitle. Are we all pervs? I think that we are all sexually deviant. Um, I, but I wouldn't say that we're all perverts because I use the word pervert for to, to distinguish between somebody who does harm uh, versus somebody who simply thinks particular abnormal Thoughts uh, mm-hmm. with their, their uh, the, with their sex life. So, um, the word pervert was actually used uh, originally to uh, refer to atheists or heretics. It had nothing to do with uh, sexuality. Uh, somebody who was a pervert was somebody who went against what is right. That was the original definition of the term. And of course, um, hundreds of years ago, that meant to go against biblical uh, prescriptions, uh, the, the canon at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was only in the late 19th uh, century that uh, sexologists began using the word pervert to refer to those who went against what is right in the sexual domain. And it really stuck with with homosexuals. But there was this uh, assumption that a pervert is somebody who deliberately does this. He chooses to be deviant. He he or she chooses to be deviant, to go against what is uh, um, uh, normal or natural and so on. But uh, uh, from a a psychosexual perspective, a sexual orientation is something that people have simply no control over, what Mm -hmm. turns them on the most. So a pervert is somebody who deliberately causes distress or harm or suffering to another person. That's my definition of what a pervert is. So I don't think everybody's a pervert, but I do think that everybody probably is a sexual deviant Mm -hmm. in terms of their singular erotic profile. If you look at the right level, um, uh, peel back uh, the layers of their their normal, uh, broader sexual orientation. There has been historically in the, the shrink professions and you have a shrink degree. You say you're a psychologist. Experimental. Experimental psychology? Not a clinical one. A lot of pathologizing of kink, that people who are into S&M need to be cured, that these are sicknesses and illnesses, that sadomasochists, uh, it's in the DSM, is it not? 
um, it's there are caveats with mm-hmm. with, the, with with sadomasochism. Now it's only it's only uh, clinically diagnosed as a disorder if the person has a non-consenting partner and there is genuine legitimate harm or, or suffering occurring. But that didn't always used to be the case. That didn't always used to be the case. Just like homosexuality was in there for a very long time, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, 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 transsexuality, even, even for transsexuals that were completely well adjusted in terms of their uh, gender identity, were still fair game for the, for clinicians to be diagnosed with an illness. So is the head shrinking field coming around on the on the subject of non normative sexual activities and pleasures? It's becoming more liberal, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. really, now it has to do with harm, um, if you ask them anyway. But I still think that they're not doing a very good job in defining harm. Clearly. Clearly, uh, they just assume that it's harmful uh, because I think the majority of society would would experience a particular act as harmful. So, what do we? One question I sometimes get, and then actually, will you hang out and take some questions, some calls with me? Absolutely, on perverted desires yes. um, or deviant desires. Uh, one question I sometimes get, and I got it recently from a parent who listens to the show um, who didn't want their their call broadcast, is they find out that their kid. You know, it's one thing to know that some 25 or 26 year old or, you know, an adult friend of yours or even your own sex partner as an adult is into something crazy and kinky. But to find out that, you know, your own kid at 13, 14, 15, when kids are diving into pornography and masturbation, as their porn reveals them to be a serious kinkster, that this person's kid is watching hardcore BDSM porn and the parent is freaking and wants to know what to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. You can't head off a kink. No. Uh, and at that age, even at 13, 14, 15, it's irrevocable. Um, most, of the, most of the literature, the case studies with pe- on people with paraphilia, certifiable paraphilias or fetishes, will reflect back about their early childhood and uh, actually tell you that something very specific or, or a discrete event transpired between the ages of usually four to nine, which is surprisingly young, mm-hmm. um, that they can remember quite clearly that is associated with their adult arousal response now. And that's an age between the ages of four and nine. We don't even think of kids as sexual uh, during that developmental period. Um, but I think we that's probably to our disservice because if we had much more open-minded conversations with children, age-appropriate discussions about sex um, at a younger age, um, it, it probably would um, help them adjust to whatever particular kink or fetish or uh, paraphilia they might have because, again, at that age, you know, 13, 14, 15, especially for males – um, it's not something that they can change. So they'll have to deal with it somehow basically. In a non-shaming way. You can't scold your kid out of it. You can't turn your kid off of it. And right. we can't discrete experience proof the world that some of the things you described in uh, Why Is My Penis Shaped Like That, particularly I'm thinking of the person with the swim cap fetish. Right. Just there's no way you can make the world safe – for kink-free adults because these experiences that a lot of kids have that wind up instilling this deviant desire, this, this paraphilia are just so random. Completely. It's, a, it's an algorithm and it's mysterious. And part of the difficulty with looking at these questions from a scientific perspective is that you can't do good studies. You can't have controlled experiments. Because you, you can't raise a, children in yeah, the lab. You can't have like a, uh, uh, an experimental group of infants, you know, 15 infants uh, that are, you know, they have, you manipulate their early experiences in their environment to why see. Can't, now, why can't you do this? Versus a control group to see who's going to grow up to be sexually deviant as adults. I mean, most parents, of course, aren't going to volunteer their children for something <laughs> like that. And the parents who would volunteer their children for that are the deviants. There's a sampling bias there, yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so, so there's lots of speculation in terms of the etiology is the clinical term or the developmental origins of a fetish or a kink or a paraphilia. So right now we kind of just have to take the adult 
paraphiles or the, the kinksters or the fetishists at their word in terms of what they think caused or triggered mm-hmm. their um, atypical arousal response. And that's that's murky because sometimes people as adult fetishists or kinksters are desire to look back in their life and point at an event right. that almost absolves them of some sort of sense of responsibility for it. Not that I think it's a choice right. but that this need to like point out that thing that happened to me that made mm-hmm. me this way. Mm-hmm. Sort of implicitly embraces the fact that the way I am is somehow I agree, yeah. dented or dinged or damaged and so I need to find that car wreck in my childhood that explains it. I agree. But if you look at – if you sort of scan the clinical literature at these case studies – Which uh, I never do. Right. right. It's, I, mean, it's, I rely on people like you to do that for well, me. Uh, you do, synthesize it in amazing books. You do find these recurring trends that um, these episodes that they're recounting – do fall into this, you know, relatively discrete age range of four to nine. It's not, it's not a critical period, but it's certainly a sensitive period, it seems. Um, and it's mostly males. Women might be, you know, they might have some sexual imprinting uh, earlier in their childhood, but they seem to be able to escape that imprinting more readily than than males do. They have a much more broader range uh, of desire. What can turn them on um, uh, in adulthood seems to be much more varied than f- for men that are sexually imprinted. So quickly, advice for that parent who discovers that their kid is watching kinky porn. There's nothing you can do to make them not kinky. Is there something you should be doing at that moment? I think that, you know, turning a blind eye is probably is probably the best way to go for something that is demonstrably or, you know, clearly um, not harmful. Mm-hmm. It might be weird. It might be unusual uh, uh, in terms of the representation and the population of those who are into those types of things. But, but um, thank God your kid lives in the age of the internet. Which but is if it's a diaper to... fetish or something like that, right. um, you know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a catastrophe. There are certainly worse things to be. But you have a bias there too because you're wearing a diaper right now, as I am, am yeah. I. Did you hear it? Yeah, yeah Jesse would only agree to come on the show if we right. all wore diapers. Only a diaper here. too. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're actually pull-ups, but thank you. But, uh, no, but I, but I think that um, if, it's, if it's completely innocuous and it's, it's clearly or demonstrably not harmful, ignoring it might be the best way to go about it. If it's a, it's a, if it's a, a period in the child's life, 13, 14, where it would make them grossly uncomfortable to even have that conversation. If it's something that um, uh, is going to pose major problems for them uh, throughout their – Like autoerotic uh, asphyxiation. Autoerotic yeah, asphyxiation, dangerous. being attracted to animals, children, something like that. I think you really do need to have a blunt, frank conversation with them um, if this is something that they're seeking out. Uh, because they do need to learn how to handle those things appropriately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would you like to take some calls? Yes. Thanks. Here we go. Hi, Dan. I'm a middle-aged, straight, vanilla guy with a question about kink. I say I'm vanilla. I'm vanilla in practice, but kink features in my erotic imagination, and which, which is just a polite way of saying the kind of porn I like. I'm specifically interested in spanking, and I find that I can't find, I can find a lot of nice spanking porn, but I can't find the, anything that depicts what I'm actually interested in, which is to say I'm not at all interested in role-playing or punishment scenarios or DF-type dynamics. I'm simply interested in pain. I like spanking as an element of sex in the way that hot pepper is an element of goat vindaloo, uh, an ingredient I have found exactly one video that that is actually what I like. Two women who there's no pretense of one of them being a schoolmaster and the other one being a school child or anything like that. No um, no sense of submission other than the purely physical sense that one of them is beating the other one's ass. 
but these are two women who are clearly just having sex, and their particular brand of sex is focused on, you know, that kind of uh, pain. And um, I can't find that anywhere. Now, I know it's not your job to find people porn, and I'm not asking you to, but the fact that I can't find it made me curious about something. Is this not a thing? Is this is is, is what I'm looking for not something that uh, actual pinksters do or are interested in? Or is there some other reason that I'm having such a hard time finding that kind of porn? You've just written Perv. You must know where all the good spanking porn is. It's out there. I don't think he's looking hard enough. I don't think he's engaged in the kind of editing that all adult porn consumers are charged with, which is Certainly. you ignore the shit that you don't like and focus on the moments or scenes you do like. You can edit out the plot. Uh, you can fast forward past the lawyer part. You can, yeah. I think um, he's probably uh, looking at you know, at the wrong websites. He's, you know, that's definitely something that's out there for him. But I think the reason so much of the spanking porn has these little scenarios is that spanking happens in some sort of context. People just don't slip and fall and spank each other. It does sound. I mean, it does sound like he's looking for two women that are spanking each other. Is that is that my? I, I think he'll settle for it. Okay. So, <laughs> um, but this, this is a really common fetish, spanking, and and, and yes. paradoxically, not paradoxically, but uh, news to some people, it's common also among women because women typically aren't regarded as uh, quite as susceptible to fetishes and paraphilias as men are, and they're not. Um, and the, the literature and the science bears that out. Something like a hundred to one. Ninety-nine to one, yeah. That if we're talking about like clinically diagnosable or certifiable paraphilias, where you re, you you need a specific type of target or uh, trigger to turn you on for sexual gratification, and only that, it's a very male phenomenon. That's not to say that women don't have plenty of kinks. And, and spanking is a kink that is common among women. Can, Spank, well, spanking S and M, more generally speaking, is, is mm -hmm. more common among the broad range of paraphilias and uh, and, and women than than anything else, right? But even that, it's twenty to one in, in favor of males. And women are more likely to be the masochist in the relationship than they are the sadist. Um, certainly, there are lots of dominatrices and uh, uh, women who are uh, more sadistically bent. But um, the aggregate population, if, if you look at um, female uh, kinks and fetishes and so on, they're more likely to be the – to favor the masochistic role. Mm -hmm. So they should be out there in terms of uh, liking to be spanked. I mean that's not something that's terribly um, exotic. So our advice for this guy as perv experts, both of us, is just to fast forward past the plot that annoys you and get to the spanking and pretend it's context-free spanking. But I I've encountered this with other people who have sort of kinks uh, like this where it's not just the act but a very sort of particular type of scenario, very scripted and that can seem so so limiting mm. but they need they need not just spanking but they need spanking to happen at a certain time in a certain way in yes. a certain context with certain people and at what point does uh, a kink become so specific and and, and narrow cast that it's almost self-defeating it's almost your erotic sort of turn-ons defeating your sex life that's the nature of a paraphilia, really. They need a very specific type of erotic trigger to, like to turn them on. So, examples. so I was thinking, you know, this is similar to somebody who is an amputee fetishist, an acrotomophile. Um, many of them will say that it's not just any old amputee that will satisfy them. They need a, a woman, for instance, an attractive woman that has a, an amputation on the left side below the, below the knee. Uh, anything else will leave them limp and cold and uh, just doesn't do the trick for them. So uh, it's a, you know, it's, it becomes quite restricting, I think, in terms of having a partner uh, that uh, satisfies their, their sexual needs but also potential for a romantic relationship. 
Absolutely. Unless you meet somebody who's willing to have a limb amputated for you. And they're out there too. And what is your professional opinion of that? Um, <laughs> is that harm? If somebody's like consenting to – I've somebody fell in love with somebody who has an amputee fetish, certain below the knee thing and I'm willing to well, there are, go to Mexico and pay a corrupt <laughs> doctor to take my leg off below the knee? There are apodomophiles who actually um, try to cut off their own limbs. Um, for sexual reasons as well. So I guess if the, if you, if the apodomophile can meet the right acrotomophile, um, I see no harm in, in any, any sort of clear ostensible sense. So not that I'm for it necessarily. but <laughs> No, I, and that's a good question because I remember uh, w- there was another amputee fetishist whose wife caught him uh, masturbating to amputee porn and she realized that the only reason that he was with her was because she had an amputation but he had never shared that with her before um, and she became quite distressed and she um, uh, uh, made him throw away all of his uh, amputee porn uh, collection um, and uh, she would sort of swat him away whenever he began to fondle her uh, her stump for lack of a better word here and um, I thought that's quite sad because you know really it's no different than uh, a strong being preference a, for blondes. Or yeah, big exactly. Tits. Or having blue eyes, or you know, or having a nice ass, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I've, so. I've gone a few rounds with you know. I understand that a lot of people are amputees or and in wheelchairs. About that, yeah. were, that's deeply traumatic. It's Absolutely. a very scarring and horrifying right. experience that led to right. them being in a wheelchair, having lost that limb. But you know, you don't want to be with somebody who sees you as a fetish object. Right. But you want to be with somebody who wants to be with you, who finds you subjectively attractive, and right. which he didn't. He also he liked her. I mean, he actually. I mean, he felt romantically um, inclined toward her. He was in love with his wife. It wasn't just because she was an amputee that um, that that made their relationship good at that point. Up, up to that point. Uh, so I think it was unfair the way that she would reacted uh, in, in that way. We've come a long way from spanking and where to find the right spanking porn. Right. So um, let's go to the next question. Amputee spanking is uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe the next Spanking two amputees is where yes, we wound up. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Dan. I am a every sexual female and I had a question pertaining to me coming out to my husband. And what I mean by every sexual, just a little context here, I'm um, – this is going to sound crazy. I'm literally sexually attracted to everybody. I am sexually attracted to almost every decent human being on the planet. And I try to explain this to family members and friends and husband and my husband. And I usually just get a lot of questions and I kind of just chalk it up to being bisexual because that kind of divides the population in half and mathematically makes it easier for people. But when I talk to my husband about it, he's visibly very uncomfortable about it, and he says that he's he's concerned that eventually it's going to lead to the downfall of our marriage. I'd like to put him at ease, but I don't know anybody else who's like me, who is genuinely sexually attracted to everybody. I meet people at the grocery store and think, wow, I would have sex with that person, or a person bends over the wrong way. He could be the most fat man on the planet. You're like, wow, that guy has really strong legs. That's awesome. Isn't he cuddly? And it's just, it's everybody. And I want to put people at ease also that I'm not going to have sex with people. Like, even though I'm sexually attracted to everybody, including my bosses, my therapist, I'm still an adult and I'm still responsible over my body. And I've chosen to only have sex with one man. So I don't know if you could help me out with that. That would be awesome. I'm not sure what the problem is exactly. She wants to fuck everything that moves. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what the problem is. I mean, she seems to have the ideal uh, sexual profile to be is attracted it, to anything and every, every, everybody. Is this a thing, though, to be to want to fuck everything that moves? 
Uh, I've never heard the term every sexual. Uh, is that what she yeah, said? Yeah, that's what she called um, it. There's the pansexual community. Maybe that's probably the best uh, fit for her. We have to, Or we have to add E to LGBTQ, LSTF, Q again, IA, and now E for every sexuals. We she, don't want to leave anybody out. She would be classified perhaps as hypersexual. Um, I'd like to know how much she actually is masturbating and what she's fantasizing about when she's masturbating. Is she actually masturbating to these morbidly obese men that she uh, seems to be attracted to in the grocery store? Um, or does she have a preferred type of target when she's uh, fantasizing sexually? That would probably be revealing of um, a preference. Or maybe she's confused. Maybe she doesn't – maybe she assumes that everybody doesn't move through the world and their daily lives constantly spotting people that they would fuck. On the right. bus, at the grocery store, walking down the street, the waiter, the barista. We're always kind of scoping the world and going, yes, 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 yes. And so the world is full of people that my some part of my reptile brain goes stick your dick in it, stick your dick in it, stick your dick in it, stick your dick in it. That doesn't mean I'm. By the way, can you take it out of me right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you pulled the diaper down, and that was just the go sign here uh, at the Seven Club. I know, give you when mixed the, signals. When the diaper's down, Dan is in. <laughs> um, but but maybe she's just confused. Like she, she moves through her life, she sees lots of people she'd like to fuck. Some are men, some are women. They're all different types. But I I can't imagine she wants to fuck. Bill O'Reilly and if she everybody yeah, she I mean I would imagine she she might want to see a doctor if she's chronically aroused <laughs> but you know I or think, if she passes a stinky bum on the street and goes I'd do him right um, from an adaptive perspective that doesn't make a lot of sense you know evolutionarily the, how so. Uh, well, if you're a fertile woman who's attracted to 85-year-old men, for instance, and mm -hmm. um, uh, you're willing to have sex with that person uh, at the peak of your reproductive cycle over hundreds of thousands of years, that, that wouldn't have been a very adaptive decision because he wouldn't be around long enough to help you raise your child. What about homosexuality? This is the, ar the evolutionary argument that why homosexuality might be a choice according to some right-wing bigots because, right. of course, uh, evolutionary pressures would uh, – would, would Adapt against it, that we should have died out. There are a number of evolutionary theories for homosexuality. Um, uh, I mean, one of the interesting uh, facts, it's not terribly surprising actually, is that homosexual men are not infertile. We can impregnate women if, you know, if we have Under duress. alcohol in our, in our systems. <laughs> but um, if we can pretend they're court oversuit you know, long gay, enough. Yeah, right. And for gay, gay men for thousands of years did that. Um, Oscar Wilde had two children. Yes. Uh, and uh, so, I, so the. The evolutionary explanation for a particular sexual uh, disposition or orientation being okay or not okay is, uh, is, is not very informative because, again, it gives back to this question of what's natural and what's normal. Therefore, it's okay. Um, if it works, it works. But what she's talking about here seems to be – you know, maybe maybe she's attracted to them but she's not necessarily aroused by them. Uh, or, you know, that, that's, that, that's a different concept, I believe, to see somebody as attractive – or to see something attractive in anybody, to find the most attractive aspects of a person, which is mm. which is a virtue, I think, um, versus you know wanting to fuck them uh, in the stairwell. And I think it may be just her sort of shock and feelings of being special and unique are a function of her ignorance about everybody else. That I don't think it's unique to move through the world going, I'd fuck that, I'd fuck that, I'd fuck that, I'd fuck that. Everybody goes through the world doing that. Maybe there's a few more people on your list of those you would fuck because. The numbers and different types of people that you're attracted to may be broader than some other folks, mm -hmm. but everybody goes to the world like spotting people bending over at the grocery store going, uh, yes, please. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So you may be less special moment. than you think, caller. 
Right. And especially for, you know, for, for female sexuality, as I said earlier, uh, there's the, a broader spectrum of erotic possibilities in terms of what can potentially turn uh, a person on. Because women are pervs. Uh, women really are pervs, right? And we both looked at Nancy. <laughs> we both turned to look at Nancy who refused to wear a diaper because she's obviously very self-conscious about how perverted she is and didn't want to draw attention to that fact. Hi, Dan. Um, so I have a question for you. I was hoping you could mediate a dispute between me and my coworkers. So here's the situation. I'm a 30-something young woman. Um, I run five days a week, every week. And um, my running route is typically um, an out-and-back trail loop in which you run three miles out, hit a dead end, turn and come back. Um, so this Sunday, I was out doing my run as usual and going out. Everything is fine. Um, coming back, I notice a man in the distance. And as I get closer, I think, oh, he's peeing. And as I get closer, it becomes apparent that he is not peeing. <laughs> he is behind a tree a small tree, and he is definitely masturbating. Um, so at this point, I just fixate straight on the trail, just keep going, don't acknowledge the guy in any manner, and finish my run. So I mentioned this to my coworker who contends that I was in imminent danger of being raped and that this was a very dangerous situation and that I should, like, notify the police and I could never run down that trail again, and this is this is bad and horrifying. So I guess there's a couple of points here that I was curious about your thoughts on. Um, one, the dangerous situation of this. I mean, I was kind of under the impression that for, for people who like to um, you know, masturbate in public, that the thrill is in being caught in horrifying people and that if you don't really acknowledge them, then you're not possibly reinforcing the behavior and it's not that high a risk of a situation. And then in terms of recurrence, I was just kind of like, this is, a, I've been running on this trail for a year and a half and I've seen somebody out on this trail doing something like this maybe twice. <laughs> I feel like the risk of me being hit by a car if I was to run along the roads are much higher than actually having like some public masturbator chase me down and catch me. So um, anyway, I was just curious to hear your thoughts. Exhibitionism is a it's a really interesting moral sexual problem actually. There there was based on her description that didn't seem to be that she was in any imminent danger. He wasn't soliciting her necessarily. If he was doing it discreetly yet in public um to deprive of deprive him of his sexual satisfaction uh when he's not doing demonstrable harm um, seems to be, but you could argue that he's harming her sense of security and safety and peace of mind. And I don't need. You could to argue see that, that about anything, really. I mean, really, people. Well, the fact that somebody's got an erect penis in public, um, mm -hmm. if it's if it's threatening her. Yeah, but, part of, but if part of his enjoyment is the discomfort he's causing others, is that right. not harm? That would he would be diagnosed with a with a psychiatric illness as an exhibitionist because it is inherently seen as causing harm to others. But I do think that that it's not quite that straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody is masturbating in public um, uh, simply by virtue of having their penis penis out with an erection and being seen by others, it depends on the person's intention, I, I suppose. And how do we divine their intention? I mean, he did it in a place and at a time I'm where he was likely to be I'm not saying it should be legal or illegal. No, no, I, no I'm, not, yeah. I'm not trying to box you in on that because mm -hmm. I, I get what you're trying to say, that there are people who get off on public sex and want to have sex in public and if they are observed through no fault of their own, are they at fault? Are they the wronged uh, – are they wronging someone or are they the wrong parties? Because there are places you can go to be sort of semi-publicly sexual and everybody's OK with it. You can go to bathhouses. 
Um, in Europe, they've already, they started marking some parks as you know. Here are signs that say, "Past this point, you may encounter people fucking. If you don't want to encounter people fucking, don't walk down this trail." Turn which the seems other way. Yeah. right. But a lot of people who are exhibitionists don't want to do that. They want to sneak up on somebody and scare them or disturb them or ruin their day. They want to pull up next to somebody in a car and be beating off. Or it's not, you know, is it true that most exhibitionists are just sort of accidental public masturbators? No, I don't think so. I mean, if he really is an exhibitionist, he does want to be seen. But it's not clear to me, based on the description that she's given, that he would be seen as an exhibitionist. Perhaps he just got incredibly randy, was thinking about his girlfriend or his boyfriend, and just needed to kind of. uh, I think you're giving him the benefit of too many enormous doubts right here. I'd like more information, I suppose, and that's you know that's one of the themes that that I've tried to articulate that we need to look um, at at these types of situations on a case by case basis. But most people who engage in public exhibitionism, where they are intending to disturb someone else, that is kind of a non consensual sexual imposition. Absolutely. Yes. And the question I think for her is, and her friend, this debate they're having. Is that sort of person who engages in that kind of non-consensual sexual activity, exhibitionism, likely to upgrade to rape, likely to be someone who will leap out of the bushes, will progress from public exposing themselves publicly to tackling somebody and having sex with them against their will? There's no evidence of that that I'm aware of that uh, exhibitionism is sort of a, um, uh, a, gateway. a gateway drug to rape or something along those lines. It's a it's a paraphilia in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kurt Freund was a sexologist uh, back in the 1980s who uh, considered voyeurism and um, fraturism when you touch people in public and exhibitionism to be a courtship disorder. Uh, basically, this is a it's pretty disordered courtship, right there. <laughs> right. It's a it's a, you basically get fixated at a at a level of courtship that. Um, uh, that- I, I missed that in my uh, <laughs> in my. Uh- Dating in health classes, the uh, the masturbating behind trees. Well, for most for state. most people without a paraphilia, they have this phase where they exhibit their desire or their attraction to somebody else, and they signal their interest in the mm-hmm. other person or their partner. Um, maybe it's not necessarily by flashing your genitalia at them, but uh, you give them some clear sign. But for people with a courtship disorder, including um, uh, exhibitionism, that actually trumps in terms of their erotic arousal the the actual act of having intercourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes even more exciting and, and, and erotic to to just uh, stay at that at that level uh, of courtship. So while it's possible that an exhibitionist could also uh, sexually assault somebody, we can't look at an exhibitionist and say there is someone who is likely to or will inevitably sexually assault somebody. I, that's absolutely correct. Yes. No one ever asks – I go out and I do book tour things and I talk about my book and nobody ever asked me this question. Uh, so I'm going to ask it of you. Why the fuck should anybody read your book? I think that these are questions that most people have. You know, They don't necessarily um, talk about them on an everyday basis. It's not something that they can share readily with their – even their best friends or uh, can even sp- – you know, think about themselves and be honest with themselves about uh, about their sexual about their, sexu- about their sexuality. The things that go unsaid. I think that we're happy happy enough to talk about things that are acceptable. You know, if we answer questionnaires and surveys and self reports and you know give interviews and those types of things, we're, we're happy to say things that resonate uh, with the audience in a way that uh, we know we we will be accepted. Uh, people will uh, be sympathetic to the types of things that we're saying, but. That, that's occluding uh, the more interesting questions that lie beneath the surface. Jesse Baring, his new book is Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, published by FSG this week. It is terrific. And Jesse, again, uh, among sex writers, I just think is fearless and peerless. And you should pick up his book, Perv. And you should get his other book too, Why Is the Penis Shaped Like That? Thank you so much for coming in and taking some questions with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
Hi, Dan. This is a 23-year-old straight-ish girl from a big city in Canada. Uh, I'm a big fan. I used to write a sexuality relations column in my undergrad university newspaper, very much influenced by you. And so I'm not used to asking the questions, more used to answering them. Um, But since I've moved to a new city, I have started uh, dating someone that I really like, and I'm dating for the first time in a while. And I have a question about moving it to the next level, I guess. We started talking online before I moved here, and so we've been talking for about a month and a half, and we've been dating for maybe a little over a month. And we've maybe been on five or six dates, so I see him about once a week. And for me, it feels like it's hard to get to know someone really well when you're only seeing them once a week. And I'm kind of would like to see him more, but things seem really, really casual. Like we do text every day, but we don't see each other that much. We haven't said things like, you know, I like you or anything. But I mean, when we see each other, we hang out for, you know, six hours at a time, nine hours. And, you know, we've been fooling around since like the second date, but we haven't had sex uh, which is unusual for me. Do you think the fact that we don't see each other more is indicative of him not being that interested? Um, I don't want to be the one to start us hanging out all the time. So maybe like kill for just something that we do and then also just something that we do. If it was up to me, I would be suggesting things a lot more frequently, but instead I just sort of wait for him to do it. So do you think that this means that he's not super into it? Do you think I should just be more patient and let it, be casual until it isn't or is there a way I can move it along? I want to say really jerky asshole things about somebody gave you an advice column and this is your problem? This paralysis and hesitancy informed by all sorts of sexist assumptions about the way women are supposed to game out their relationships with men and you have to sit by the phone and wait for him to call lest he get the impression that you are as interested in him as you are. Right? Lest he get the impression that What's happening for you is happening for you. Why shouldn't you want him to have that impression? If you want to see him more, tell him. If you want to ask him out more, ask him out more. If you want to spend more time with him, ask him to spend more time with you. For all you know, he is sitting at home by the phone thinking, I would call her, but I don't want her to think I'm too... uh, 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 uh." For all you know, he wants to spend as much time with you as you want to spend with him. And he's just as hesitant, just as pansy-assed as you are. Sometimes it amazes me that people ever get laid because so many people have this problem where they fear what? They fear the other person knowing that you feel the way that you do. Nobody ever gets laid ever if you don't let that other person know how you feel eventually. You don't want to spook people. You don't want to scare them off. You want to roll it out. You know, you want to demonstrate that you have good judgment, high emotional IQ, but eventually you have to shit or get off their face and make the fucking phone call and say, hey, the times we've hung out have been really great. I'd like to see more of you. And maybe he'll say, oh, I was feeling the same way. And maybe he'll say, oh, I don't know. And then you know that he doesn't reciprocate your feelings and you can go find somebody else who wants to be with you as much as you want to be with them and spend as much time with you as you want to spend with them. This isn't something at this stage you should be hesitating to do. Call him. Ask him out. If he comes to see you, great. That means he's as into you as you are into him. If he doesn't want to see you, great in a way. That means now you know to end it and move on and find the guy Who's out there somewhere are the guys who are out there somewhere who want you as much as you want them and want to be wanted the way you want to be wanted. And the sooner he reveals himself to be not that guy, the sooner you'll find that guy or those guys who are that guy or those guys. Does that make sense? Can you believe they gave me an advice column? 
Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the 28-year-old straight guy in the Midwest who was so intertwined in his five-year relationship that he couldn't get out of it. This was in episode 364. I just wanted to say that while everybody loves to hate lawyers, when you need one, you should call one. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling with a comment for episode 364, your guest expert, when uh, you guys were talking about the caller whose girlfriend had a suicide attempt when he tried to break up with her. And in the interview with the expert, you had asked the expert if, if there were times when a suicide attempt or threat was a manipulation tactic. And she, in my opinion, basically denied that that is something that happens. I work in the field of domestic violence. I'm an advocate. And we, as advocates, have what's called a lethality assessment, which is basically a list of behaviors, red flags, that indicate that an abusive situation has the possibility for that abusive person to potentially kill their partner. One of those behaviors on the lethality assessment is threatening suicide. It absolutely is something that abusive people within the um, dynamic of abuse where power and control is a problem, um, where manipulation is a problem, where domination is a problem, they can and will threaten suicide as a way to keep their partner right in place. Suicide is a very serious problem and definitely take those threats seriously. However, in the context of abuse, emotional abuse or physical abuse, but also even where the abuse is just emotional and not physical, threats for suicide are power and control tactics, 100%, and they're very dangerous. Hey, Dan. I'm calling a reference to um, a 41-year-old woman who, um, who was hooking up with a 21-year-old dude who, uh, who wouldn't eat her pussy, but she sucked his dick. Um, I'm just going to say, I'm 35 years old, and if some hot, hot, hot ass 21-year-old girl lifted up her skirt and asked me to eat her pussy and didn't offer me anything in return, no blowjob, no sex, I would be eating that shit. I would put that on a plate and fucking stop it up with a biscuit. And we're going to leave it there. A big thanks to all the subscribers to the Savage Lovecast Magnum. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for renewing your subscriptions. And thank you for being there for us the way we try to be there for you. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jesse Baring on Twitter at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Baring, B-E-R-I-N-G. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.